time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Rosebro, your guest, your host, your servant in Christ. Dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, taking a look at the trends, thoughts, ideas that are currently running through the church, fads if you would, comparing them to the Word of God, testing to see if what we're being told is truly from God's Word, or if it's something else. All right, this is Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am on the road. I am literally recording this program from the lovely suburbs of Chicago. Yes, I'm I'm in the city of Schaumburg, Illinois. Schaumburg, Illinois. Yeah, Schaumburg is just about six miles away from Spaceship Willow Creek. <laughs> I call it that. I drove by it yesterday. That is one large, large um facility and they've got a lake and they've got a it just it it literally looks like it fell out of the sky it looks like the mothership from uh the uh et movie or <laughs> the close encounters of the third kind I, i'm i'm gonna have a close encounter of the reveal now kind um starting tomorrow now i'm recording this on monday and uh so i'm not live right now this is memorex and uh the, later this afternoon i'm actually going to be interviewing Doug Paget of the Emergent Church, and we're going to be talking about his new book, A Christianity Worth Believing. So that won't be on today's uh, podcast, but you will definitely be able to catch that uh, tomorrow. I hope to get the post-production work done on that tonight and uh, have that up for tomorrow's show. So I have to pre-record everything because of my travel schedule and because of, uh, well, just the logistics and everything that's going on. And so today's show, we're going to be catching up on some listener email. We'll also be... uh, listening to some thoughts from the Reverend Joel Osteen. I've been listening to the audiobook of uh, Not Your Best Life Now, but uh, Become a Better You, and want to compare that to the Word of God and see if, if this is really what the Christian message is all about or if Joel Osteen is uh, preaching a different gospel. And what's funny is is that I don't understand why people are paying so much money you know, to you know, to get a hard co- hardcover edition of this book, when if you've listened to just a couple of Joel Osteen sermons, you pretty much have heard all this stuff before. So without any further ado, we're gonna get <laughs> get into our listener email. Got a lot of it. I've got so much to catch up on here. It's it's not even funny. So uh, we're gonna start with uh, Patrick in Omaha, Nebraska. He writes. Regarding your challenge for people to tell you about their experiences standing up to church leadership. Now, if you're not familiar with that, a few shows back, I was talking about small groups and was challenging people to uh, exercise some biblical discernment. And if somebody in their small group or their church said something that wasn't true, it didn't jive with Scripture, then the thing to do would be to confront the person publicly and basically say, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. Well, I got an email here from Patrick in Omaha, Nebraska. He's writing about his experiences, and apparently he had done this prior to the challenge, so he's uh, he's writing about his experience before that. He says, regarding your challenge for people to tell you about their experiences standing up to church leadership, here's some of my story for you. I led a small group at our church, and I was teaching through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, When we got to 1 Thessalonians 4, 
verses 15 through 17, which is a common proof text used to support the idea of a rapture, I presented some scholarship to the contrary, refuting the notion of interpreting what Paul is talking about as a secret rapture. One of the members of the group who was unfortunately a deacon at the church, despite his only qualification being that he was was, uh, free one Tuesday night a month for the meetings, he took great offense at my teaching. He was a disciple of Hal Lindsey and Chuck Missler, Tim LaHaye, etc., and uh, bought hook, line, and sinker into their premillennial dispensationalism. He proceeded for the next several months to send me numerous emails telling me how erroneous my teachings and beliefs were, I'm an amillennialist, and how his premillennial dispensationalism was the generally accepted position of the historic church, oddly enough, when I pushed him on this point, He admitted that he was defining historic church as the 20th and 21st century evangelical church. Yeah, by the way, um, you'd be hard-pressed to find any support or even a mention of a secret rapture prior to the the 19th century at all. In fact, that's where the doctrine got its beginnings was in the 19th century. I think it was uh, Darbyism that got that thing going. I'm doing this from memory. So he continues, I see, oddly enough. Okay, see, he also proceeded to tell anyone who would uh, listen in the church how erroneous and evil my eschatological beliefs were. He even pulled uh, Chuck Missler's line about amillennialism being anti-Semitic. Missler took a step farther than this gentleman and blamed amillennialism for the Holocaust. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so uh, apparently your amillennial views are responsible for the Holocaust. That's outrageous. So he says, eventually I was run out of the church. I will admit that some of the reasons for my being run out of the church were indeed my own fault. And I could and should have handled things with more maturity and godliness. Nonetheless, this gentleman and his staunch belief in dispensational premillennialism and his considering anything which dared to question that eschatology as evil and dangerous theology played a large role in that outcome. And now here's the twist in the story for you. I was the pastor. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, Patrick, I'd uh, like to know if you're still a pastor anywhere or if you've uh, left the ministry altogether. Boy, that's really sad. Um, people, just so you know, if you're going to stand up for the truth in, in the church, in the church, if you're going to stand up for the truth in the church, the chances are really good that you're going to be labeled as being divisive, unloving, evil, uh, narrow-minded, uh, a biblicist, uh, uh, I'm sorry, engaging in bibliolatry. Bibliolatry, that's a thats a $5 fancy term that basically means that you worship the uh, Bible uh, rather than um, God because you actually believe the things that are in the Bible. Um, standing for the truth is not something that is done lightly, and even though I've challenged you guys to do it, I know perfectly well that some of you, standing up for the truth could cost you dearly. But that's what we're called to do. Remember Christ himself, who is God in human flesh, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, They crucified him. And uh, standing for the truth nowadays is a dangerous thing to do, especially in the church. All right. Moving to the next email. This is Richard Watts from, from, oh man, Nottinghamshire uh, in the UK. He accidentally called me Grace, and he apologized. He says, hi, Chris. Just a quick note to encourage you in your reaction to heretics, apostates, or whatever that is praying for them. Too many evangelicals seem to become too pharisaical and and just condemn the people in serious deception. 
you know, Richard, you bring up a great point, and that is is that um, Scripture tells us to pray for those who persecute us. And even though it's completely feasible to believe and understand and, and know that the outcome might be that somebody who is teaching these errors will go into eternity teaching these errors and heresies and therefore face God's judgment, that is not at all our goal, our hope, or anything of the sort. Um, it, scripture is clear that it's God's will that all should um, come to a proper knowledge. It's not His will that any should perish. So that being the case, um, we we got to continue to keep in mind that even when somebody is teaching rank and gross heresy and is fleecing God's sheep and is and is teaching error that is sending people to hell, that as dangerous and terrible as that is, still our reaction to them is in love. Why? Because Christ even died for their sins. So, our job is to pray for these people and to uh, and to engage them in conversation with a hope and expectation, and uh, <laughs> prayerfully understanding and hoping that God would give them repentance and lead them to a correct understanding and teaching of God's Word. Now, as for taking hits off the baby Jesus, it'd be funny if people weren't serious about it. Well, actually, he says, no, it wouldn't be funny. I know the Lord chooses the foolish things to confound the wise, but hey, come on. And yes, I know I probably just took that statement out of context. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do that too. Um, when it said, you know, when, when the Lord says, the Bible says that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Sometimes I feel like one of the largest fools in the world. I, if God's sending me to talk to somebody, I'm as bad as foolish as they get. They must have really screwed up because uh, they got me. <laughs> talk about talk about the uh, lovely parting gift. Anyway, he says, I disagree with some of what you say, but God bless you since I'm not perfect and neither are you. Amen. Neither one of us is. But I believe that our hearts in Christ are in the right place as we seek First, the kingdom and grow in our understanding, and uh, under, and our understanding changes and grows. I look forward to having long conversations with you in heaven. Well, we can have email exchanges here on earth too. <laughs> Thank you, Richard, for the email. All right, uh, here's a here's an email responding to last week's lecture lectures that I posted on the bondage of the will. And uh, Brad writes, and here's what he says. He says. Chris, recently uh, finished listening to your Bondage of the Will podcast, and I'm confused on a few of the points that you made. Maybe you answered these and somehow I missed them. If so, I apologize in advance for asking these. First of all, you talked about how we cannot choose Christ and he must choose us. That's all well and good, and I can understand that. What I don't understand then is if it is the, if that is the case, does that mean that he also chose specific people to burn in hell for eternity? Probably the best analogy I can compare what I'm trying to say is like picking teams in grade school. I choose you, 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 and you. The other children, despite uh, what team they may want to be on, have uh, no say in the matter and get stuffed <laughs> where they don't want to be. To say Jesus must choose us before we can accept him, uh, accept him to me sounds like he's picking a team for heaven and doesn't want a, a lot of the other guys. Could you please help clarify? Okay, now um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this straight up. Um, Lutherans are different than Calvinists in this, and even in Calvinism, there's there's a couple of different stripes. You've got the double predestinationalists, and you know, and 
I'm going to basically answer the question by basically saying this. Scripture doesn't give us all of the data that we need in order to solve this particular theological conundrum. And, um, and so we have to, uh, we have to uh, basically attack this issue, attack this question from a few different directions with the goal of you know, trying to maintain some of the clarity that we do have in Scripture. One of the things we can say with, with certainty is that God is loving and he's just. And it also says in his in his word that it's not his will that any should perish. So um, whatever is going to, whenever we understand, finally understand how this election thing works and what exactly are the gears behind it, the one thing we're not going to be able to say about God is that he was unfair, unjust, and capricious. Now, that being said, God in his justice could say to all of humanity, to hell with you. And you know what? There isn't a single one of us who could point a bony finger at God and say, that's not right. That's not fair. You're not just God. No, actually, God could have said to the entire human race, to hell with all of you, and to hell we all would have gone, And because that's what we all deserve. Now, regarding election, there's two pieces of data that seem to be contradictory, and um, but they can't be, so they're going to have to be paradoxical. Okay. On the one hand, it's really clear in Scripture that God is the one who chooses us. We cannot by nature choose God. And uh, if you go back and listen to the lecture, go back and listen to what I, you know, what I brought out from the Scriptures, it's, it's very, very clear in God's Word that we cannot by nature choose God. We are by nature sinful, at war with God, and the reason why we sin is because we are sinners by nature. Um, therefore, we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps in, in order to save ourselves. Okay. And then on the other hand, there's also some pretty clear passages that that are that you can put in counter distinction to the election passages that say this. Uh, for instance, First John chapter two verse two says, "He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world." Um, John one twenty nine says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, this is John the Baptist, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you've got these election passages that basically make it clear that God is the one who chooses, and he chose us before the foundations of the earth. So truly we are elected by God, and we are chosen by God to, quote, be on his team, if you would. Yet at the same time, you get these other passages that basically say that Jesus Christ is, uh, you know, died for the sins of the whole world, not just the elect. Now, this makes me different than uh, a Calvinist. And what the, what do the Lutherans do with this? We basically say both statements are true, and we don't know how to resolve them. We so we hold them in paradox, just much the same way that we look at the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that uh, that God is one. And yet there are three persons in the one God. How is this possible? I'm having a foggiest clue. I have no idea how it's possible. God is something completely wholly other than us. So what we do is we look at these two very clear teachings, election and that Christ died for the sins of the world, and we basically say we're not sure how this all works out. Why is it that when some people hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit gives them repentance, and the Holy Spirit gives them faith, 
that they trust in Christ and are truly regenerated. They're, they're, they go from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. They go from being a goat to being a sheep. How does how is it that Jimmy, Jane, Martha, and and uh, Joey, when they hear it, the gospel, they're given faith, and uh, Tatiana, Jason, and and Mark don't. I don't know. The the scriptures do not say. And one of the things I've had to learn, and this is a this is an admonition that I would give to all of you, is that where scripture speaks clearly, we speak clearly. Where, where Scripture is silent, we also must be silent. So I can say with certainty that the Scriptures clearly teach that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. None of us can choose Him. God elects. And so I don't know how the mechanics of it all work out. Yet all of these things are true, and it's true without contradiction. It's paradoxical for us at this point. And uh, this particular question that you've asked, Brad, is like, I think it's the crux theologicum is what they basically call it. It's, this, it's, it's the uncracked or the unsolved mystery. And so rather than choosing to solve it, Lutherans, unlike Calvinists, basically say the scriptures clearly teach two positions that are held paradoxically. We must maintain both and basically wait until Christ gives us the answer on the last day or the day after the last day, whatever he chooses to reveal the rest of the information. But um, this is one of those situations where um, we have to trust to Christ's goodness, his love, his kindness, his justice, his, you know, his mercy, and know that it's not his will that any should perish. That's truly true. And Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Truly true. And yet only the elect are saved. That's truly true too. So, um, that's that's the answer to the question, and uh, <clears throat> we'll we'll just have to go from there. Now, there's a second question that Brad asked. He says, "Also, you had made it sound as though baptism is required to be saved." Now, that's not my position. So you read into my, what I said. <laughs> um, for instance, the thief on the cross can't recall a time when he was baptized prior to his death, um, and yet he was with the Lord in paradise. What I did say, though, is, is that baptism definitely is a means of grace by which Christ washes us, our sins are washed away, forgiven, we are buried with Christ, and we are raised with Christ. It's truly a means of grace. So he says, now this is, may not have been what you meant, but that's the impression I came away with. If it is such, wouldn't that have made Christ's death a waste? Um well, the answer to the question is no, because you didn't hear me right. A baptism would be of our own works. A baptism would be of our own works, as I see it. And if and if it is uh, required to be baptized, then that wouldn't be like saying Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough. Okay, I, I get what you're saying. If you turn baptism into something I do, um, or work that I do in order to be saved, um, then that's definitely there's a problem there. Baptism is a means of grace. It is not a meritorious work on our part. And so you and I are both on the same page. And um, Lutheranism and Christianity do not teach that baptism is a work of man, but it is something that is done. It is a work of God. So anyway, so uh, he says, I'm not trying to attack your program. I'm just trying to understand. Brad, great questions. And in fact, I encourage people, 
write tough questions. Send me emails on stuff that you're just not sure of and would like to get some more clarification for. Perfectly sound thing to do. All right. Regarding the uh, the election thing and the bondage of the will, got another email here. It says, Brother Chris, might I add that brother is a higher title than preacher and doctor or theologian? We all do have free will, and our will is to sin. Uh, you, that's absolutely true. He says, and what does uh, John 3 say? A passage of scripture I have yet to hear preached in any church. Granted, I've only been saved for three or four years, <laughs> 3.4 years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if you've only been saved for 3.4 years, chances are you probably haven't heard an entire circuit of preaching. But if you're going to today's seeker-sensitive churches, chances are pretty slim you're going to get uh, an entire sermon series on John chapter uh, John 3 or even 1 John uh, or 3 John. It says, we have free will, and it's ours to run as far from Christ as we possibly can to indulge in our own lusts and sins. Yep, you got that right. John chapter 3, verses 19, 20, 21 say this. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God or worked by God. Absolutely. By nature, we are sinful, we are in darkness, and we love the darkness, and we hate, hate, hate the light. Why? Because our deeds are evil. And so uh, what's our contribution as far as, you know, the, we have the free will to sin. We don't have the free will to choose God. It's, that's, in fact, that's not even something we can do by nature. All right. This is a funny one from uh, Gregory Gomez. He works for Blue Cross. He says, I've been listening to your podcast, and they have been great. I really appreciate what you're doing. It's a blessing, and I have been learning a lot, especially about what's going on in the purpose-driven churches. More important than that, thanks for teaching us listeners the word. You're, you're welcome. He says, have you heard a sermon about the differences between Batman and Superman? <laughs> Okay. Have you heard a sermon about the difference between Batman and Superman? I can give you the info on where you can hear that sermon if you're interested. Yes, please send me that. I'm sh <laughs> Oh, that just sounds like it's so junior high. Oh, man. <sighs> We're going to have to review that one. <clears throat> okay. Um, yes, P Gregory, please send me that. He says, I'd love to hear you critique that. You, me, me too. It's from an urban version of a purpose-driven church. I had to literally rip my sister out of that church because of the bad teaching. Well, you know, I'm sure it's spiritually important for us to understand the major differences between Batman and Superman. So, you know, I'm at this point, I'm worried for your sister because it sounds like your spiritual teaching might be uh, deficient. <laughs> okay, now about Pastor uh, Larry the Cable Guy. He's off the hook. I thought I heard some bad sermons but uh, before, but this Risk sermon uh, pretty much takes it. It was funny but sad at the same time. I was wondering, though, do you know what happened at the church that he started that made him want to uh, take a bat to the pews? It almost sounded as if the church may have been teaching the Bible using traditional methods. Well, yeah. I mean, apparently that's the problem. If, if you miss that sermon, uh, folks, you've got to go back and, and listen. I'm going to play the uh, relevant, uh, the the all important quote here, and uh, so that you can you can hear it again. This is uh, Pastor Gary Lamb, and uh, uh, the uh, the sermon was about how to live your life uh, by the spiritual principles of poker, 
In other words, it's called all in living and and uh, and, and living without regrets. And and Pastor Gary Lamb during his sermon shared his big regrets. And uh, <clears throat> let's see if we can play this for you. You don't live with the regret of action. You live with the regret of inaction. You know what my biggest regret in that church is? It's how I left that church. I wish I'd have, if I had to do it over again today, this is how I'd have done it. I wish I'd have walked up in that church with a baseball bat, clocked that woman in her noggin, punched her husband in the face, took a baseball bat to those pews, burnt the organ up, set the piano on fire, showed them people that it's not about them, it's about reaching this community, showed them they can take their tradition and shove them where the sun doesn't shine, and they ought to get busy reaching the community for Christ. That's my biggest regret. Spoken like a true, down-to-earth, spiritual example for all. <laughs> oh, man, what has happened to preaching in America? Uh, somebody sent me an email pointing me to uh, Gary Lamb's blog where he defends his uh, preaching <laughs> and he claims that he preaches more scripture than anybody. Uh, no, you don't. So. <laughs> now, there was, okay, just so you know, there was a whole bunch of you uh, who sent me in uh, your entries into the Who Wrote That, uh, who wrote that article. And uh, I read an article from a ladies' magazine last week, and it's not too late for you to uh, put in your entry. There's a couple of people that have it right, but this is a kind of a dual thing here. You not only need to get it right, but you have to give me a good explanation. And so the person who gets it right and gives me the best explanation as to who they think it is and why it will actually win a Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt. And so I'm gonna we're gonna read we're gonna read a couple of the people who've got it wrong. It's, I'm sorry, but this, some of you got it wrong. I know that it's going to hurt some of your guys' feelings. Uh, Roxy writes, um, she says, I shot off my email before hearing the PS. I think it was Joel Osteen because, one, the only thing he ever talks about, and I won't say preaches because he is not a preacher, but a pep talk artist who tells people what they want to hear is in the flesh. His listeners' desires, expectations, comfort, health, wealth, happiness, and self-esteem. Actually, we're going to be uh, playing some sound bites from Joel Osteen's uh, book, how to Become a Better You Today. Uh, Osteen leaves out the gospel message of the cross. He's one of the many who are uh, the Second Timothy 3, 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness and deny its power. Absolutely true. He consistently doesn't seem to know what is written in the Bible and when he does mention the scriptures, out of context. Out of context. So, um, Roxy, great, great entry, but it's not Joel Osteen. The name of the article was Learn to Love Yourself. Learn to Love Yourself, and uh, it's not written by Joel Osteen. Got another um, a, uh, another entry here from Andrew in Ontario, California. And he says, am I too late? I says, I hope not. Actually, you're not. He says, okay, my first reaction was it's either Osteen or Schuler. I mean, really, it, it could be any number of these uh, of these days when self-esteem is all the rage. But those are the top dogs. I think Osteen is a, is a bit too obvious, so I'm going to go with Schuler. See, even the Osteen, uh, even though Osteen was somewhat raised on Schuler's nonsense via John Osteen, it seems to speak more about life, your best life now, a life worth living, live like a champion. And even his wife's books titled Love Your Life, but Schuler has always focused on self-esteem, which was even in the title of the article you read. 
As I listened to the article, I could think all I could think about and cringe over was Schuler's letter to Christianity Today, in which he wrote, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism that ha- uh, enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. That is a direct quote from Robert Schuler. Schuler's 82-page uh, uh, book called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, is further evidence pushing me toward my guessing he is the perpetrator, or I mean author, of the article, especially when he writes any creed, any biblical interpretation that assaults and offends the self-esteem of persons is heretically failing to be truly Christian no matter how undergirded it might be with biblical references. I find it incredible that he claims that no argument can stand against the idea of self-esteem no matter how biblical, even if it's literally a verse-by-verse contradiction of his idea. He's eliminated all detractors by fiat. So I'm going with Robert Schuller. I don't think anything has been done in the name of man and under the banner of self-esteem that has proven more destructive to biblical Christianity and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the off-crude, uncouth, unchristian strategy of attempting to make people believe they only have to love themselves and their happy and sin-free condition. Andrew, great email, great reasons, but it wasn't Robert Schuller. I know, I know, I know you're finding that hard to believe. It wasn't Robert Schuller, but it's true. It's not, it wasn't Robert Schuller who wrote that. It was somebody else. So great, great reasons though. And I loved your turnaround in that email. Perfect, wonderful, witty, well thought out. I got to give you my thumbs up approval, but it's not Robert Schuller who wrote that. Okay. Okay. So, um, by the way, Brandon Ellis writes me, says, if your pastor's biggest regret is not beating church members with a baseball bat, he might be a redneck. (laughs) Okay. All right. We're going to go into our break. And when we come back, we're going to listen to a little bit of Joel Osteen's book on how to become a better you, how to become a better you. Now, if you would like to email me, you can. You can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, let me know what your entry is. Who, who wrote that article, Learn to Love Yourself? Or if you'd like to talk about Bondage of the Willow, anything, any reason, send me an email, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases 
can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. Would you like to have your best life now? Do you want to be a better you? Is Christianity all about teaching you how to be the best that you can be? How to have the best blessings from God right now? How to be successful in your finances, your health, and in your marriage? Well, that's the uh, subject of Joel Osteen's latest book called Become a Better You. Um, it's all about seven keys for transforming and improving your life. you know. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be listening to um, Become a Better You. We're going to play some segments from this, and we're going to do some biblical critique. But I, I kid you not, this is some of the craziest stuff I have ever heard. And uh, we're also going to listen to Joel Osteen uh, messing things up here as far as God's Word is concerned. I can tell you one thing for sure is that... Uh, uh, Osteen here probably would make uh, Robert Schuler really proud, really, really proud, because he's he he his message wouldn't hurt the self esteem of a butterfly. So, without any further ado, let's dive into some Joel Osteen here on uh, how to become a better you. This is from the audiobook version, and he's the reader of it. So, uh, lucky us, we uh, we get to listen. Whether life is going well for you or collapsing right before your eyes, we all want to be better. We want to be more effective in our lives. We want to know God better. We want to be better spouses and parents, better community leaders, better employees, even better bosses and managers. God puts something deep down inside us that evokes a desire to be more like Him. Okay, got to stop right there. Go back and listen to my lecture on the bondage of the will and ask yourself, if God's Word does teach that God has put something deep inside of us that makes us want to be like God? Or is it that by nature we want to be God and we want to kick God out of His place and we're by nature sinful and at war with God? Which is it? Because here's the deal. If you misdiagnose the bad news, if you misdiagnose man's condition and you don't properly understand what man's condition is before God, then you're going to mess up the message altogether. So, uh, <clears throat> just wanted to point that out. In our inner being, we hear a voice saying, You were born for better than this. You were meant to live at a higher level. Don't be satisfied with less. You can be better. The question is, how? What must I do to become a better me? In my first book, Your Best Life Now, I presented seven steps to living at your full potential. 
Today, many people are developing a greater vision for their future and are experiencing more of God's blessings and favor. But even if you are living your best life now, it's important that you don't become stagnant. God always wants us to increase, to do more in us and through us. He always wants to take us deeper into self-discovery and then wants to raise us to a higher level of living. God wants to take us deeper into self-discovery? Anybody out there, can you, can you provide me a verse that supports that idea that God wants to take us deeper into self-discovery? Self-discovery. Never heard of it. I don't even think it's a biblical concept. Where is he getting this from? He didn't create us to be average. He doesn't want us to settle for good enough. He wants us to keep stretching, to keep pressing forward into the next level. Well, how do you know if you've done enough? How do you know if you've pressed hard enough? You know, what's funny is, is that so many people say that Joel Osteen's message is a positive message. That this is, that, that, that he's just giving us the positive. I, I got to tell you, I'm listening to this on already. We're just, we're like a minute into this and already I'm depressed. And the reason I'm depressed is because it makes it sound like God is never going to be satisfied with who I am. And he's going to basically demand more and more and more and more and more of me. But the problem is, is that I'm a sinner by nature and I don't do these things. This sounds like a, a treadmill that once I get on it, um, I'm going to end up going nowhere and becoming exhausted really quick. The next level. Now, in Become a Better You, I want to help you do just that. I want to take you deeper. I'm hoping to help you look inside yourself and discover the priceless seeds of greatness that God has placed within you. <clears throat> Did you hear that? Joel Osteen wants you to look inside yourself and pri find the priceless seeds of greatness that are inside of you. Is that what Scripture teaches? Well, doesn't Scripture teach that uh, we are by nature at war with God, sinful, that our hearts are darkened, that no one seeks God? Yeah, it makes me feel like I better pull out my Bible here. And uh, I, I think if we go into Romans chapter 3, it'll make the uh, the case pretty pretty carefully here. It says, uh, what, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's a pretty depressing view of humanity. And it's a depressing view of humanity because why? When we search deep within ourselves... That is exactly what we're going to find. Inside of all of us, it's dark. There's spiders. It's bad. It's evil. And out of our hearts come wicked things, murder and adultery, lying, theft. All of these things spring from within us. And yet Joel Osteen says that God wants us to look inside of ourselves and find the seeds of greatness that are within us. I don't think so. I don't think so. That's not what the scriptures teach. Let me play that again for you. I want to take you deeper. I'm hoping to help you look inside yourself 
and discover the priceless seeds of greatness that God has placed within you. Now, see, here's the issue. He's talking about the priceless seeds of greatness. And I, these, I think these are very interesting terms that he's using here because the promise for humanity actually comes through Abraham and through the seed of Abraham, all of humanity would be blessed. If you want to know what the seed of greatness is in Scripture, it's not something that's buried inside of ourselves. The seed of greatness is Jesus Christ. Rather than having us focus outside of ourselves and focusing in on Christ and what he has done for us, Joel Osteen is basically saying that inside of you there's greatness and you just got to learn how to hunt for it and dig it out and to cultivate it. But the seed that Scripture talks about is Jesus Christ, the one and only true seed of greatness and righteousness, the one who came and died on the cross for our sins. But that's not what he's preaching here. That's not what he's preaching at all. Well, I'm going to fast forward here in just a minute, and uh, we're going to get to the next section of Joel Osteen's little talk here. This is a long segment, and so I, I'm going to have you ask you to stick with it here as we uh, listen to uh, Brother Osteen talking about more about this becoming a better you concept. Too many people are living far below their potential. They have many gifts and talents and so much more going for them but they've gotten comfortable, settled where they are, and lately become too easily satisfied. I often hear people making excuses for stagnating in their personal growth. <laughs> Man, are you stagnating in your personal growth? Growth? Well, you better not be making excuses for it. You've got work to do. You've got stuff to do. you got to get busy, and you got to keep growing, 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 because if you're not, you're... Yeah. Growth. I've achieved as much as most. Compared to other people, I'm doing pretty well in my career. I've gone as far as my parents did. That's great, but God wants you to go further. He's a progressive God, and He wants every generation to be increasing in happiness, success, and significance. What? God is a progressive God who <laughs> wants us to increase in significance and and you where is this in the joel joel pastor i mean well life coach osteen where is this in god's word i i don't see this theme in there at all did you just make this up kids no matter where we are in life god has more in store he never wants us to quit growing we all have areas where we can come up higher. We may have achieved a certain level of success, but there are always new challenges, other mountains to climb. All right, I, I got to tell you this. I don't know how on earth this is supposed to be a kinder, gentler, and more positive presentation of the gospel. I'm just getting tired thinking about what I've got to do now. Oh, more mountains to climb. Oh, man. I better go get my climbing gear. Ugh. There are new dreams and goals that we can pursue. God wants to show his favor in your life in greater ways today than he did yesterday. He wants you to be more blessed tomorrow than you are today. Huh? He intends for you to have a greater impact on the world than you've had. Huh? That means if you're a teacher, you haven't taught your best lesson yet. If you're a builder, you haven't built your best home yet. If you're a business person, you haven't negotiated your best deal yet. Yeah, but what if I'm like 80 years old and retired? What if I'm 40 years old and want to retire? Joel, what are you talking about? 
can you support this from God's word? I mean, you're you're basically doing this one size fits all approach using your life coaching techniques and message here, but good night. Yet it's time to get your hopes up, enlarge your vision, and get ready for the new things God has on the horizon. Your best days are not behind you, they're in front of you. Yeah, but what if I die tomorrow? You know, driving out here in Chicago is kind of tricky. I mean, I don't know the lay of the land. What if my GPS sends me off a cliff? They're in front of you. But if this is going to happen, we have to keep pressing forward, stretching ourselves. Get rid of low expectations. Don't make little plans for your life. Don't have little dreams. Don't go around thinking, everybody gets good breaks except me. I've reached my limits. I'll probably never get this promotion. I don't know why I'm not as talented as that other person. No, get rid of... That sounds like the Eeyore complex. Uh, he, 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 he should have said it like Eeyore. Nobody loves me. I'm Eeyore. I don't understand why everyone else gets all the good jobs. I don't get the good things. I'll never do this. So is, is he solving... Is he reaching out to the Eeyores of the world here? Get rid of that defeated mindset. You are a child of the Most High God. God has breathed His life into you. He's planted seeds of greatness on the inside. You have everything you need to fulfill your God-given destiny. Now here, here <clears throat> got to take a quick summary here. One of the things in, in studying God's Word, it's really important to understand who was the audience that the author was writing to. Not every book of the Bible was written to a general audience. In fact, many many of the books of the Bible were written to specific audiences. And unless you understand that they were written to a specific audience, the actual way of interpreting that book becomes muddled if you change it from a specific group to a generic group. Because in, in those situations, you, you, lose, you lose some distinctives. Keep in mind that uh, Joel Osteen's book is called Become a Better You. And it's written for a general audience. This is not written specifically for Christians. In other words, if I'm a non-believer and I'm reading this book, then I'm coming to the conclusion that God has put seeds of greatness in me. Seeds of greatness, which is completely contrary to what the scriptures teach um, regarding the state of, of fallen humanity. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Speaking to the uh, Ephesian church prior to their uh, receiving of faith and repentance from God, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, in which they once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and, the mind, and, and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the biblical message, before you can understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. The bad news is this. By nature, we are sinners. God has every right to throw us all into hell. And it's not that we have seeds of greatness in us, Instead, we have utter darkness within us, a darkened heart, a wicked heart, deceitfully wicked that cannot be trusted. This is what Scripture says 
the state of humanity is. Whereas Brother Osteen here, and I'm using the word brother in a very, very, very loose and generous definition here, is basically saying that all of us have seeds of greatness within us. Makes you wonder, how does he define greatness? Is it the same way the Bible defines greatness? Or is he defining greatness the way the world defines greatness? God has already put in you the talent, the creativity, the discipline, the wisdom, and the determination. It's all in you. You are full of potential. But you have to do your part and start tapping into it. You have to make better use of the gifts and talents that God has given you. Years ago, a friend of mine and a passenger were in Europe driving on the Autobahn, the superhighway across Germany. Unlike many American freeways, the Autobahn has no speed limits. You can travel as fast as you want to drive. My friend was so excited as he pressed down the accelerator and took the car up to 80 miles per hour, then 90, 100, 110. He felt like he was the king of the road, zooming past people left and right. A few minutes later, another car streaked down the freeway. This car was the exact same model as my friend's car, but it blew by him like he was standing still. That second automobile must have been going 170 miles per hour. The passenger traveling with my friend laughed and said, See, you're not going as fast as you can. You're just going as fast as you will. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so, yeah, well, see, we're all on the Autobahn. We all have this high-performance vehicle that we've been given to us by God, that we all have these seeds of greatness, this incredible engine, this incredible machine who wants that wants to just run and go fast on down the Autobahn, but we're not driving it to its full potential. You know, that might be true for some people, but is this the Christian message? Is this the Christian gospel? Is this what the Bible teaches? I don't think so. Think about that. My friend's car had tremendous potential. It, too, was capable of going 180 miles per hour. The manufacturer put in the potential. How fast my friend drove didn't have anything to do with the car's capability. In other words, the potential was not lessened just because he chose not to use it. And simply having the potential on board did not affect his future. Now, notice um, this is a great story, but uh, this isn't really what the Bible teaches. You, you're going to be hard-pressed to find this in God's Word. It's the same way with us. Our potential has been put in us by our manufacturer, our Creator, Almighty God. Whether we use it or not does not diminish it, but it does impact our future. The events of your past do not reduce your potential. How somebody has treated you, what he or she said about you doesn't change your potential. Maybe you've been through some disappointments or have had some unfair things happen in life. None of that affects your potential. Okay, so we... Is, is this what the disciples taught? Is this what John the Baptist was out there baptizing people in preparation for the Messiah was this was this his message? Repent, you have great potential. You are not living to your potential. 
Don't you understand? You're just like a really, really fast cheetah, but you're walking instead of running. I had to use cheetah there because, you know, we've got to use an old world analogy. People back then wouldn't have known what a Porsche or a Ferrari was. Um, is this the biblical message? Did, did the apostles, were they martyred to tell people that God has put seeds of greatness in them and that they have potential and they need to just dig it out? Is that why the Apostle Paul was beheaded? Is that why the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down in the circus of Nero? I don't find that in the scriptures. Do you? A young woman named Sherry came to me for advice. She had tolerated an abusive relationship for years in which she was repeatedly told, you can't do anything right. You're so slow. You're not attractive. After hearing that for so long, it had totally beaten her down physically, emotionally, and spiritually. She had no joy, little confidence, and extremely low self-esteem. Oh, no, not self-esteem, not low self-esteem. You're kidding me. She had low self-esteem? No, it can't be true. I told her what I'm telling you. Your value, your gifts and talents have been put in you by Almighty God. It doesn't matter what anyone else has spoken over you. The good news is, God has the final authority. He no, I thought the good news is that Christ died for our sins because we're all sinners. He says you have a treasure on the inside. No, he doesn't. He says that we have a heart of stone, that we're by nature objects of God's wrath. He says you have a gift. No, he says we're all sinners in need of a savior. He says you are valuable. Oh, this is true. We're so valuable that Christ died for our sins even while we were still wicked and sinful against him. You've got to quit playing that old tune and put on a new one. You need to be dwelling on thoughts like I am creative, I am talented, I am valuable, I have a bright future. My best days are still out in front of me. Oh, here we go again with that Stuart Smalley stuff. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. That's not Christianity. That's Stuart Smalley. That's self-help. That's the kind of stuff I can get from Tony Robbins. I don't need Christ for this because Christ didn't teach this. You have to get your mind going in a new direction. Because dwelling on negative thoughts about yourself will keep you from becoming all God's created you to be. Too many people don't have the confidence and the self-esteem they should because they're constantly dwelling on negative thoughts about themselves. Now, see, is that the big problem that we, we, we just lack confidence? We have low self-esteem? Is that why Christ came to earth? To give us better esteem? It's about themselves. I don't say this arrogantly, but in my mind, all day long, I try to remind myself, I am anointed, I am creative, I am talented, I am successful, I have the favor of God, people like me, I am a victor and not a victim. <clears throat> I'm getting sick. I'm sorry, I just threw up in my mouth. Victim. Why don't you try that? If you go around thinking those kinds of thoughts... Low self-esteem, lack of confidence, or inferiority won't have a chance with you. Put your shoulders back, 
Put a smile on your face and be looking for opportunities to stretch to the next level. Take that frown and turn it upside down and you'll find out. You know. <clears throat> Sorry. Everybody's got a laughing place. Yeah, okay. Level. Back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they hid. Okay, <laughs> got to warn you about this part right here. Uh, Brother Olstein here is uh, going to be reading God's Word, sort of kind of telling us what uh, the story of the Garden of Eden is about. You know, go back and ask yourself, uh, is this a story about Adam and Eve uh, being told negative things about themselves? Or was this about them disobeying God and becoming sinners? I mean, it's called the fall, right? What did they fall from? Right. What did they fall into? Did they go from being uh, righteous, holy, perfect, to being sinners, broken? Or did they go from having good thoughts about themselves to listening to negative thoughts from the devil? Listen how Joel Osteen handles this particular passage of Scripture. It's so creative. In the cool of the day, God came to them and said, Adam, Eve, where are you? They said, God, we were hiding because we were naked. I love the way God answered them. He said, Adam, who told you that you were naked? In other words, who told you that something was wrong with you? God immediately knew the enemy had been talking to them. Who told you something was wrong with you? Well, that's funny. Satan didn't tell them there was something wrong with them. Satan deceived them into disobeying God. Isn't it amazing that he is so completely twisted, God's word, and that this self-help, me-centered message even misdiagnoses by a long shot the primary problem of humanity, that we are all sinful by nature. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve's sin their disobedience to God. And he's turned this into a story about negative words about yourself. Who told you you were naked? God is saying to you today, who told you that you don't have what it takes to succeed? Really? Where does he say that, Joel? Oh, oh in your book. But uh, it's not the one true God who's behind your book. It's very clear based on your teaching that's not the case. Seed. Who told you the best grades you could make in school were C's rather than A's? Who told you that you're not attractive enough? Who told you that your marriage is not going to last? You know, i got to say something. Uh, have any of you ever met somebody who is highly su successful and extremely obnoxious? You know what I'm talking – you know the person I'm talking about, the person who has all the wealth and they wear it on their – in their fingers and their – in their car and their house and everything has to be just huge and sparkly and shiny and big and I – I've known quite a few people like that. And uh, they were successful by all the world standards, but they needed a savior just as badly as I did. Since when did – Success, according to worldly standards, equate with success according to what God has in store. Joel's got it all wrong. He's telling you what your itching ears want to hear, but he ain't telling you the truth. Who told you something was wrong with you? Uh, the Bible. Those are lies from the enemy. No, the lie from the enemy is, is that I'm okay and that I have seeds of greatness within me. That's a lie from the enemy. 
Christ came to redeem us, die for our sins. You're not even telling people that they're sinners. Enemy, you need to reject those ideas and discover what God says about you. <laughs> Man, uh, let me fast forward here. There's another great section here just a few minutes up. Man, this is another great Bible twist. I think you're kind of getting the gist of what it is that Brother Osteen is teaching here. I mean, this isn't really God's Word. This isn't a true and complete explanation of what humanity uh, is all about, our problem, and what Christ came to solve. Listen to how he twists the Apostle Paul. Listen to this one. When people attempted to discourage the Apostle Paul, trying to talk him out of his dreams, telling him what he couldn't do, Paul responded, what if they don't believe? Okay, can anyone tell me where somebody was trying to talk the Apostle Paul out of his dreams? Where is that in the New Testament? Will their unbelief make the promise of God no effect in my life? Paul was saying, if other people don't want to believe God for better things in their lives, fine. But that won't keep me from believing. I know the promises of God are in me. <laughs> By the way, that particular passage of Scripture is Romans chapter 3. Um, it's, and he's completely quoted it so far out of context using a bizarre translation that you, you wouldn't know it. I mean, I had to really hunt for this one. Romans chapter 3, it was 3-2 uh, is the verse, but uh, actually 3-3. Three, three. And uh, let me read to you, read it to you in context. So then what advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted, trusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, by no means. Let God be true and everyone a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he was... Quoting Romans chapter 3, verse 3, supremely out of context. Supremely out of context. And, you know, basically making it about somebody trying to tell Paul, you know, that he didn't, you know, he they, uh, to discourage him from achieving his dreams. But Paul never looks inside of himself for his answer, does he? He always looks to Christ and him crucified. In fact, that's what what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 regarding his own righteousness. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul wasn't, his message had nothing to do, nothing to do with, you know, you know achieving some vision that he had for his life or, you know, some grand uh, seeds that he had, you know, of greatness and cultivating them and bringing them out. It, it's not that at all. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite the opposite. So, anyways, let me let me read to you 
a, a section from First Peter chapter uh, two. Um, actually, I'll probably read more than chapter two. It's two and three. Um, and I want you to listen carefully to what Peter says, and put this in juxtaposition to what Joel Osteen says. First Peter chapter two verse eighteen. He says, "Servants, that means slaves." Be subject to your masters. I, I, I want you to think about that for a second. Peter here is writing to Christians and to Christians who also happen to be slaves. Now, this is a hot button issue for Americans, you know, because of our dirt, you know, regarding slavery in our history. But it's time for us to uh, open our eyes a little bit here, and I want you to hear what Peter says to Christians who are slaves. And I want you to think about this. You don't even own yourself if you're a slave. You're owned by another person. Peter here isn't saying have a grand vision for yourself, to think highly of yourself, to find the treasure within you, to not let anyone talk you down and to and to bring yourself, you know, to great financial wealth and health and all that kind of stuff. Here's what he says. He says servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Does that sound anything like what Joel Osteen is saying? Let me read verse 21 again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. He left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but counted entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Isn't that interesting? What I see in the true Christian message is not me pursuing my dreams, but enduring suffering because Christ has suffered. It's not about having my best life now or becoming my best me. It's about counting myself as dead to myself and alive to Christ. If you have your best life now and are pursuing your best life now, then you will get your reward. But for the Christian, we understand that we are sojourners here on this planet, that our kingdom is yet to be revealed, and that the king is coming, and when the king comes, he will bring our salvation with him. And so, in this life, we may suffer, we may be beaten, we may be ostracized, we may be martyred, we may have everything taken from us, including our lives. 
The Christian message is not about me. It's about Christ. That's what's missing in Joel Osteen's messages. It's all about you. For a time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but instead will gather for themselves a great multitude of teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Anyway, today's a shorter version of Fighting for the Faith. I'd like to thank you for tuning in and listening today as I am on the road, and hopefully tomorrow we'll have the Doug Paget interview up and ready for you guys to listen to. Now, if you'd like to email me, I'm looking forward to the Paget interview, by the way. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, if your expectation is, is that I'm going to somehow take Paget to task and debate him on my radio program, that's not the purpose of this interview. The purpose of this interview is to delve deeper into his ideas and his thoughts and let him speak for himself. You know, maybe later I'll pull the I'll I'll, I'll critique all of that. So I want to keep I want you to keep that in mind. So uh, if your expectation is that I'm going to somehow slay the dragon or something like that, that's not what's going to go happen in this interview. We might slay the ideas later, but I really want you to hear what it is that he thinks and believes and teaches. And give him an opportunity to go deeper into into what he thinks and believes and teaches. Anyway, um, you can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And until next time, may God bless you. 